been preaching through the book of John, and if you've been online, you've kept up with that, but this morning we're going to begin at the end of chapter 2 of John's gospel and uh, get into chapter 3. How do you like change? The title of the message today is Radical Change. Some of us like change, some of us don't like change. We certainly don't like the change that's been going on for the last few months. We're ready for that, to, that change to change. I thought about how to illustrate change because radical change is more than just you changing something. It's supernatural. I thought about a caterpillar crawling into a cocoon or spinning a cocoon and coming out a butterfly. That's radical change, isn't it? And yet the change we're talking about this morning is actually better than that because it's natural for a caterpillar to spin a cocoon and come out a butterfly. The kind of change we're going to see this morning in this passage is the change that would happen if you took a dead caterpillar, put it in a cocoon, and it came out a soaring eagle. That's the kind of radical change that's mentioned in the passage this morning. So let me begin reading in verse 23 of chapter 2. And let me just say, when John wrote the, the Gospel of John, in fact, when all the Bible writers wrote, they didn't write chapter 1, verse 1. And then when they got thought, here's a good place for a break, I'll put chapter 2, verse 1. That happened later. And so sometimes you've got to remember when you're looking at verse 1 of the chapter, what happened right before that? I know Casey's struggling back there. I see you're throwing your hands up. We'll, we'll figure the microphone out here in a second. Y'all okay? Can you hear okay? A little bit of feedback. So reading in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I want to give you the context. We looked at the miracle of the wedding feast at Cana last week. Right after that, right after chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples went down to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. Then it says the Passover was at hand, so Jesus and his family would have traveled from Capernaum to Jerusalem, which would have taken days to walk, five or six or maybe seven days to get to Jerusalem, uphill. didn't matter which way you came to Jerusalem, it's uphill from any direction, city on the hill. What has happened in Jerusalem before this passage is Jesus has cleansed the temple. He comes into the temple. He sees the money changers in the temple selling livestock and birds for offerings, and Jesus turns over their tables and fashions a scourge out of, out of some cord and, and makes them leave the temple. After that, we get to verse 23, and, and they see these signs. So the impact of the signs is many believed in his name. 
So what have they seen? Well, John doesn't outline specific miracles that take place. The other gospel writers do mention miracles that happen in Jerusalem. This was the early days of Jesus' ministry. This is when he has just been baptized, and days after that he's performed this miracle at Cana, and now he's in, weeks later, he's up in Jerusalem. And they see signs. Many believe. That sounds good enough, doesn't it? Many believed. You would think, okay, there's new followers of Christ. Here's the problem. Many believed in his name because they observed the signs. But Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. In fact, it's interesting to note the word that's used to talk about their belief is the same word used to talk about his committing. So literally the passage says many were believing in him, but Jesus wasn't believing in them. What's the difference? James chapter 2, verse 19 says, the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe a lot of stuff about Jesus. They believe he's the son of God. They believe he was born of a virgin. They believe that he was crucified on the cross. They believe that he rose the third day from the dead. And yet, they're not followers of Christ. What's the difference? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth, we confess, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So you've got to be careful just saying, oh yeah, I believe, and it kind of harkens back to the story of the, the parable of the sower. You remember? The sower sowed some seed, and some of the seeds sprung up quickly. It's kind of an emotional response. That's what's happened in Jerusalem during these days. They've seen these miracles, and so it says they believed, but there's no root there. There was no conviction. There was no repentance there was no forgiveness they just simply had believed in jesus and so john writing he said jesus knows what's in man he knew their belief was superficial because it didn't include conviction and forgiveness if all you see are the signs you probably missed jesus even his own disciples had to be asked who do you say i am when the disciples began following Jesus, at what point did they finally realize this is more than a miracle worker, this really is God? We see that explained when Jesus asked the question at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But then he looked at his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? Remember Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. We finally see belief because they're believing more than just the fact he can feed 5,000 or he can walk on water or he can heal someone that's lame or crippled or blind. It's more than believing in signs. It's believing in a savior. Then that gets illustrated with Nicodemus. Nicodemus approaches Jesus by night. says there's a man of the Pharisees. Let me explain Pharisees. There's two major groups at that time in, in Israel. There's Pharisees, which were the more conservative, strict. In fact, the name Pharisees means separate. So these were separatists. Then there were Sadducees, a little more liberal. This is where the priests were. They weren't as strict to the law as the Pharisees were. In fact, the Pharisees were so strict that they created laws to help them keep the law. I'll give you a few examples. You couldn't break Sabbath law. So at sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath. You couldn't work. There was a certain distance you could walk and be okay. There was a certain amount of stuff you could carry with you. Ladies, you weren't supposed to look at a mirror on the Sabbath. 
because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. Man, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because you may by spitting create mud, thereby working. One of my favorites is if your house caught on fire, you could escape your house, but only with the clothes that were on your back. You couldn't carry anything out, which my cynical mind said, I'm thinking, okay, house is on fire, honey, start putting all your clothes on. By the way, let me put this jacket on you. I know it looks like a flat screen television, but you're going to need this. <laughs> but that was how legalistic the Pharisees had become, and that's who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus came to Jesus that night believing, I have worked hard for the position I'm in. Not only was he a Pharisee, but it says he was a part of the ruling class, which meant he was part of the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin is who ruled Israel. And so the, the Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, problem with Nicodemus is he was very religious. And if you're satisfied with just being religious, there's going to be an emptiness because you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's where Nicodemus was. Here's the good thing about Nicodemus. First part of the passage says, many believed. I think Nicodemus was one of those. He comes to Jesus and says, we know that you must be from God. Well, my question is, who's we? He's by himself. He comes at night. Why did he come at night? Was it because he didn't want word to get back to the Sadducees? Or the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin? Or was it because he thought, well, it's nighttime, maybe I can have a, a better audience with Jesus? But he comes at night and he asks, we know. Interesting word, know. The word could be translated to see or know. And what it really means is Nicodemus saying, based on what we have seen, I believe you must be from God. And who is we? I think we was the Sanhedrin. I think there had been conversation among the Sanhedrin about Jesus, and many of them had said he's demon-possessed. Many of them said he's a lunatic. But at least Nicodemus thought, I think he may be from God. I must investigate more. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says to him, we know. Calls him rabbi, which was a term of respect. And rabbi meant master teacher. Nicodemus would have been considered a rabbi himself. So in Nicodemus's mind, he's bringing Jesus up to his level. Isn't that funny? That you could think by using a phrase like rabbi, I'm bringing you up to my level. The problem is Nicodemus needed to get up to Jesus' level. So he calls him rabbi, and he says, we know. A lot of discussion among the Sanhedrin. We know that you must have come from God as a teacher. And that's really all Nicodemus knew about religious instruction. He was one of the teachers of Israel. In fact, a little later in the passage, Jesus says, are you the teacher in Israel? This may have been the premier teacher of the Pharisees that had approached Jesus. Then Jesus makes a powerful statement. I don't hear a question yet, but Jesus is about to answer a question that at first glance doesn't even appear to be asked. Jesus says, truly, truly. It's a Greek word, amen, and it means essentially what our word amen means. It means firm or trustworthy. Jesus says, truly, truly, to stress what I'm about to say is something you really ought to pay attention to because it's firm and trustworthy. Unless you've been born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. If you'd asked Nicodemus that night when he approached Jesus, are you a follower of God? Do you hope one day after you die that you'll spend eternity with God in heaven? He would have said, absolutely. Why, Nicodemus? Because I'm a Pharisee. I'm a teacher of Israel. Look at my track record. Look at my resume. And the word he used for we know is the word Jesus used for you'll never see. He says, Nicodemus, you're, you're claiming to have knowledge of me because of what you've seen. The problem is it's missed your heart. It's just right here. It's just with your eyes. It's just with your brain. It's intellectual. And I think that night Nicodemus came for an intellectual conversation with Jesus. 
And yet Jesus said something that turned the whole conversation on his head. Nicodemus, you think you'll spend eternity in heaven? You'll never see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That's radical. Nicodemus had been born once, but Jesus is talking about being born again. And he says you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. To be born again meant to abandon everything you had placed your faith in up to that point. All your good works, your self-righteousness, everything you'd ever done counted as nothing. And like a newborn baby, he would enter the world. That's how you need to enter the world and enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus stood there with his mouth open, his eyes open. How can that be? You're talking about birth and I've got to be born again. I can't enter my mother's womb again and be born. That's impossible. And of course, that's not what Jesus was talking about. But the birth he's talking about is exactly like physical birth. It's now spiritual birth because it's that radical. In fact, that's what Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 36. He said, there's coming a day when I'm going to give you a brand new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart to receive the truth of the gospel message. Jesus was calling Nicodemus to forsake all he had worked hard for. It's as if Nicodemus had stood in the wrong line for hours, only to get up to the front and realize, I'm in the wrong line. You ever done that? Ever got in the wrong line at Disney World or maybe the grocery store? That happened a lot at Walmart because they only have about three registers open at one time. So you get in the wrong line. You realize now every line's moving faster than the one I'm in. Problem is, as soon as you get out of that line to get in another one, it's going to slow down. But Nicodemus has come to Jesus and he realized, everything I've lived for up to this point, I've been chasing and pursuing the wrong thing. I'm standing in the wrong line. And so Jesus explains, further clarifies what he's teaching. He says it again, truly, truly. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's already said, Nicodemus, unless you've been born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, unless you've been born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the realm or the rule of God. Because what is born of flesh is flesh. Humans beget humans. The Spirit begets the spirit. Do not be amazed that, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who's been born in the spirit. John the Baptist has already said in the earlier chapters, I've come to baptize you with water. John had a baptism of repentance, but he said there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is saying is you need the baptism of repentance. You need the natural birth. You need that baptism. But more than that, you need the baptism of the Spirit that changes you not from the outside in, but from the inside out. I want, I want to give you a few thoughts about birth. I have four children. My wife and I both have four children. And I've noticed some things about birth. The first one is this. One of the truths about birth is that you have a father. Now, I know I've watched Oprah Two women or two men can be on there and say, we're going to have a child. And, I, of course, my wife's more scientific than I am. And I say, can they do that? No. If you've been born, it's because you had a father. And the good news is in Psalm 68, it says he will be a father to the fatherless. So whether you knew your father or had a great relationship with your father or a bad one, we have a father in heaven 
who's a good heavenly father. So one truth about physical birth is the same thing about spiritual birth is you have a father. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. It needs to be a work brought on by the heavenly father. It's not a self-improvement plan. In the same way that you don't go into a delivery room and they have a bucket of something over in the corner and say, you know what, a little Clorox or some COVID cleaner, and this could be a middle schooler. <laughs> That's what Nicodemus had been living for, though. He thought, I'm going to take this corrupt man, and through human effort, I'm going to clean myself up. I'll do it by church attendance. I'll do it by religious acts. I'll do it by giving and offering. All of these things, which in and of themselves may not be bad, but with the wrong motive, they become bad because it doesn't earn you your salvation. So birth is not a self-improvement plan, and also no one's exempt. No one is so good that God says, you know what? What he's talking about, you don't need to do because you're good. There's nobody like that. But the good news for the rest of us, because if you've ever thought that, I've never thought that. I've thought the other thing. There's no one so bad. I had a couple in my office one time that wanted to get married, and one of the things I'm going to ask you before I marry you, first one I talked about last week, why do you want to get married? The next one is tell me your testimony. And so this couple in my office a few years ago, she gave kind of a half-hearted testimony. And when it came to him, he was just honest. He said, you know what? I just don't see a need for that because I've, I've been a good guy. I haven't done this. I haven't done. He named some things he hadn't done, and he thought that would earn him heaven. I don't need that. Seriously? <laughs> How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? Just one. And the Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So no one's exempt from the new birth. If you want to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to live with him in eternity in heaven, if you want to be born again, it applies to everybody. No one's exempt. The fourth thing is everything is brand new. Everything's brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, For anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things come. Let me talk about that physically and then apply it spiritually. When you're born, you don't have a track record. I mean, your mama may say, man, you kicked like crazy right before you were born. Well, that's, there's nine months of history maybe they can talk to you about. But when you're born and placed into your mom or dad's hands, you're brand new. I remember when Ashley, our oldest daughter, was born. They wrapped her up. And first thing they said was, I looked at her because she was born C-section. They said, well, she hadn't pinked up yet. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that was a medical term. She hadn't pinked up yet. I said, well, pink her up for crying out loud. So they pinked her up and handed her to me. And the doctor, seriously, hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, the doctor said, watch your hand. I thought, what am I doing wrong? He said, yeah, I've got a daughter at home. She can take that hand and reach into your back pocket and take all your money out. <clears throat> Which I thought, I don't need a comedian in the delivery room. <clears throat> so they handed her to me. And I thought, you know what? She's brand new. She's never done anything wrong. She hadn't ever done anything right. That would come later. She'd never given me anything for Father's Day. Father's Day's coming up. In fact, the first Father's Day that she knew it was Father's Day, she was probably three years old. She said, Dad, this year for Father's Day, I want a bicycle. I thought, she's missed the point of Father's Day. <laughs> Father's Day is when you give me something, not when I give you something. So it's all about starting over. And here's the good news. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may think, man, my past is too bad. 
There's no such thing as too bad. Come to faith in Christ and you have a brand new start. And even for those of us who are believers, when we mess up, God allows us to come to him and be renewed daily. He doesn't hold the past against us. He forgives us. He's righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Everything's brand new. The last one is this. Birth is obvious. Birth is obvious. It's obvious in a, spirit, in a physical sense. It's also obvious in a spiritual sense. We've had a lot of new phrases the last few weeks. Things like social distancing. Things like new normal. Things like herd immunity. I've never heard any of those things before. But the one phrase that I've heard I've pondered over the last part of this week is this word, asymptomatic. What does that mean? They're telling us it could be that 40% of people that get the virus, at least initially, can be asymptomatic. What does that mean? It means you've got the virus, but there's no indication. You don't have a fever. You don't have a cough. You don't have any of the other symptoms. And I thought about that spiritually. Is it possible to be an asymptomatic Christian? And I want you to pay attention to this. That's not possible. I think there's a lot of people that want to claim they're Christians, and yet there's no evidence in their life that they are. The more I've pondered that and prayed about it, there's no such thing as an asymptomatic Christian. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it will impact and radically change your life. Now, it may be some other people are further than you are spiritually, but there's begun a work in you that is going to produce things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, against which things there is no law. It's going to change you from the inside out. No such thing as an asymptomatic Christian. So what do you do with a message like this? Well, the first thing is ask yourself the question, is there any evidence that I've ever trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior? For most of you listening right now in this room, you can put a smile on your face and say, you know what? I can tell you how God's changed my life. But don't be like Nicodemus that would have given the answer, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, why? Nicodemus wouldn't use that phrase, but I'm a child of God, why? Because I was born a Jew. I've served in the temple. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm a teacher of Israel. None of that earns you salvation. How would we say that in the year 2020? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Because I live in the South. <laughs> this is the Bible Belt. Everybody in Merle's Inlet's a Christian. Have you, did y'all not know that? Rick, you got here quick enough. Listen, it doesn't matter if you were born in the South or the North. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter if you've had perfect attendance since you before you were born. Don't be like Nicodemus. Placing your hope and faith in yourself. Look what I've done. You can come to faith in Christ by acknowledging, I need a Savior. My efforts have always fallen short. But Jesus offers eternal life through faith in Him. And it could be that you're here and you say, you know, Robert, I know I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, but lately I've been looking a little asymptomatic. If somebody's followed me around the last few weeks or months or maybe years, there's not a lot of evidence that I've ever been born again. Well, make sure you have been born again. For the same new start I talked about at, at spiritual birth, Jesus allows today. 
the same arms that stretched out on the cross to die for you are the same arms that welcome you back into relationship with him. He never left you. Perhaps you've wandered away from him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for new birth. That is something that is absolutely impossible to us in our human flesh. And yet it's exactly what you call Nicodemus to, and it's exactly what you call us to. So, Father, take this message and penetrate our hearts with it. God, there may be somebody listening to me, either online or right here in the chapel, that has never trusted you as Lord and Savior. They may have a lot of religious activity, or maybe none. Today could be the day that they say yes to Jesus. And God, for others here who maybe just realize, God, you've convicted their heart today. They haven't been showing a lot of evidence, but they know there's they know there's a time that they trusted you, and they've confirmed that. There was a time where they were convicted, and they repented and were forgiven. God, could today be a day of new beginning for them? And I pray this in Jesus' name.